Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 11. And um, Romans is a little bit of a complicated book, right? Have you found that? And um, I know that sometimes it's hard to get to the homework, but I want to encourage you. Um, if you. If you don't get to all of it, at least try to open your Bible with a pen and paper and read the chapter. And jot down a few notes. Try to do that a couple times during the week because um, it's kind of like a package. Um, it, it, some of these chapters, um, you, you open the first level layer and then, then sometimes there's the box and then you open and there's tissue and then, then there's the gift. And so um, we need to dig a little deeper. And so I, I know that all of you have heard me say that, but the word of God is our food. And when you pick up a pen, it's your fork. We need to connect with the word of God. We need to dig in. We need to read between the lines. We need to be- read below the surface, especially on chapters like this. Actually, um, uh, the more I studied it, the more I loved it. And um, then I started to think, well, we should have made this two weeks. It's just so exciting. So uh, let's bow our heads and uh, like we're praying before a meal. Lord, we thank you for your good food. We know that you know everything about us. And tonight, Lord, as we study about the Jews and the Gentiles and the branches being broken off and, and all this, this amazing historical thing that you did, God, we know that you know our history. We know that you never give up on us. And God, we just want to trust you more. We just want to trust you more and know you more. For we pray in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. So, this chapter begins with the words, Paul is speaking, I say then, has God cast away his people? Has he? Has he cast away his people? It's interesting when a discussion starts with a question instead of an answer. He asks us a question, and I hope as you read this chapter that you feel very settled on it. Because the Jews, they're complicated, right? They are complicated. But here toward the end of this chapter, 11... It ends with the words, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So what is God saying there? He's basically saying, um, you're not going to understand everything God does how he does it, why and when. Even if I explain to you the long version, it's not that you don't want to understand, it's that our brains just aren't big enough. We aren't. That the multi-layers of God's master weaves are just way too complicated. It's way over our heads. Now, does that make you sad? It actually should make you excited. 
I want a God who's smarter than me. I want a God who has ways that are higher than me. I don't want to, him to stick to my plan. Well, sometimes I do. But his plan, plans and his ways are way higher. And that's good for us to know, oh, the depths. So again, what does that mean? That means that God's master plan and all the small little threads that he weaves and the seemingly random pieces that he patches together to perform a a fulfillment of scriptures like Romans 8.28, that all things, all the threads and the broken pieces and the crumbs and the, the lost pieces... All these work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Such a promise that we can live with. The universe, the universe, I'm a fan of the the big God universe, is a display of God's glorious, brilliant power. But salvation, child of God, that's his masterpiece. It is his masterpiece. It is a great masterpiece. And God is the God of the great chain reaction. You ever seen one of those, those things that people put together and the marble rolls down the ramp and then it goes into a cup and the cup spills over and it turns over the teddy bear that makes a noise? And, you know, have you ever seen those? I, I spent three hours one day watching like 40 of them. And I thought, boy, those guys have a lot more time on my, their hand than I do. It was, it was quite creative. But God's the king of all that. Let me tell you a story, and then I'm going to show you a picture. One of my favorite stories from this little book that I meant to bring it, so I'm going to try to tell this story. It's about a man named W.E. McKay. And he grew up in a Christian home. His mom loved the Lord. His mom really loved the Lord and prayed for him often. And when she, he left for college, she gave him a Bible. Probably it was all underlined and, and places she had prayed for him. She gave him that Bible. Well, he went off to college uh, to become a doctor. And the minute he left home, he left everything behind of the Christian life, and he dove into the wildlife, drinking, partying, so much so that one, one day when he was out of money, he sold that Bible just to get some alcohol money. But he was a good student, and he became a doctor, and in fact, later on, he became the head of a hospital. And one day, as he was making his rounds, they had just brought in this man that was horribly mangled from a, a terrible accident on the street. And so the doctor went in to check on him, and as he examined him, it was a fatal case. And um, the man asked, honestly, doctor, could you tell me? I know it's bad. How long do I live? And the doctor said, "Um, maximum two hours. But as he walked away, this doctor, he he kept thinking of of this man's face with this bad news the man's face countenance did not fall. He was peaceful. He was, he, was, he was actually even glowing. But as the doctor walked away, the, the man did make one request. He said, if it's possible, could you send someone to my apartment and get a book for me? And the doctor said, yes, just ask, ask the attendant. He'll do it. And, and the book was, was brought back to him. 
as the doctor made his rounds and he, he decided to check in on this man again. And, and when he inquired, yes, the man had passed away. He was curious, this delightful man, what book would he want in this last hour of his life? And um, he said, where's the man's book? And the attendant brought to him. And as the book was handed to him, he opened the cover, and in it was his name. It was the very Bible that his mother had given him and he had pawned so long ago. With that, he started trembling, and he went back to his office, and he fell on his knees, and he started weeping, sobbing so loud that people could hear him. And at that moment, he saw the great work of God, that God had not forgotten him, although he had forgotten God. God is the great king of the chain reaction So if you're part of the story where the pieces are falling down the stairs and like falling sideways, you just watch. God's on it. God's on it. So let's open our Bible to uh, Romans chapter 11. And we are going to back up the track. I have to remind you that this book... Uh, the book of Romans that we call it was not a book with chapter and verse. It was really a letter. And so chapter 10 really flows into chapter 11. So we're going to back up just a little bit because God makes three statements at the end of 10 that are very important to our discussion tonight. He says in chapter, in verse, um, verse 18, but I say, And he's talking about all the people in the world and especially the Jews. But I say, have they not heard? Because he had just said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Well, the answer to that is their sound. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Being God, God is a speaking God. I hope you don't, don't, don't forget that ever. God is a speaking God. And um, I think back of my testimony. God used all kinds of random pieces, but they were like a chain reaction. They built upon each other, even the messy ones. His words go forth in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God night unto night. They pour forth speech. God has a message for every soul, and he knows how to speak every single language. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, note, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Take note of that. Interesting word that God would use, jealousy. Why would he use jealousy? Because usually that's a bad thing. But in the the original language, this is provoke them to emulation. Hold that thought. And the next thing is said, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was manifest to those who did not ask for me. I would say that's a good that's a good explanation of my testimony because initially I started out launched by a college professor on the professor on the great quest to find myself to find myself I wasn't looking for God 
I wasn't looking for him at all. It was me that I was lost. And I became, the more I looked for, for, to find myself, the more I became very lost. God was never lost. I, I was found by those who di- did not seek me and manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, but to Israel, he says, all day long, so I've stretched out my arms. I stretched out my hands and my arms to a disobedient and stubborn people. So that again, he asks, so has God cast away his people? Well, some people would say, boy, he should have. I mean, really, he should have long ago. Should have thrown away me too. But he's not like that. He's not like that. Certainly not. Paul says, I'm glad how he says it. Absolutely not, he says. For he says, look at me. I'm a classic case in point. And he was a hard nut, right? He was a very hard nut. But we see this picture of God. God stretching out his arms. And and I wonder now, what did that look like? Well, we know in the Gospels, we have this picture of Jesus actually standing on the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you can see all of Jerusalem. And at the time that Jesus walked on the earth, the temple was still there. The Kindred Valley, you could see the whole thing. And Jesus just stood over Jerusalem, I'm sure with his arms wide open. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen, gather her chicks under her wings. But you would not. But you would not. It is one of the saddest pictures I can think of Jesus. And it was just days before he hung on the cross. How often, how he longed for that. How he longed for that. Again in Romans 11.1, has he cast them off because of that? No is the answer. God made promises to Abraham, and even though Abraham actually failed sometimes, and his people have failed, God has not given up. God's not a given-up God. That's just not how he is. God's love and promises and gifts and callings, he never takes back. So how are our lives? Our lives in this chapter, and I'm going to read just a little bit, and we're going to answer the question, how are our lives tied to Israel and tied to their history and their heroes? How did that happen? Let's read on. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say of Elisha? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So again... How is their history and heroes tied to our heritage? As a redeemed child of God, how is that? When Jesus became our Savior, we became heirs and joint heirs 
with their Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. We are joint heirs with their Messiah. That's radical. When Jesus became our, our Savior, that moment, it was Jewish blood that ran through our Savior's veins. Jewish blood. It was Jewish blood that paid for our redemption, that made us white as snow and cleansed from our sins. We must never forget that. Their Messiah is our King Jesus, our Savior, who's now very at this very moment sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Their history and heroes become our history and heroes. We as Gentiles have been grafted in to the olive tree. So now we are the same tree and the root is ours together. Jesus said, Jesus said, other sheep I have, and he was talking to his disciples on those last few hours. He said, other sheep I have, which are not of this pen, but they will hear my voice and they will follow me. And in the end, there'll be one sheepfold and one shepherd. We as, gen, gen, as Gentiles, we are grafted in to their heritage. As a young Christian, I did not have older Christians to disciple me personally. I did not. To teach me, to mentor me, to tell me how to follow God's ways. I did not have somebody like that. We in this church, we are blessed. We didn't have women's Bible studies. I needed a mentor. So it was the Jewish men and women in these pages, in God's word that discipled me and challenged me and warned me by their mistakes and gave me vivid pictures of practical living, how to be faithful, how to recover from failures. Abraham is a classic example. When he was 75 years old, God called him to leave his homeland behind and go to a place, and the exact wording is, a place where I will show you. So from him, I've learned that it's never too late to have a new God adventure. And when God leads you, he doesn't give you the whole package. He sometimes springs it on you a step at a time. He, he unravels it as we go step by step. We follow the breadcrumb trail. Step by step, he gives you each piece, the piece that you need at the, that time. I'm sorry to break that news if you're new to the faith. But it's a good thing because then we have to stay close to him to listen. From Sarah, I learned when you get impatient, don't do something stupid. From David, I learned God is always bigger than the giants that I fear. And I have giants that I fear who can say amen. Well, here's a lesson from our David. God's always bigger than our giants. From Esther, I learned there's always villains and evil people. Always. But God will always give us courage to do the right thing. From Joseph, the biggest lesson I learned from him is that forgiveness restores that's powerful. And of course, from Jesus, I've learned to live a thousand, in a thousand ways following him. 
Has God forgotten the Jews? Absolutely not. Are their lives past, present, and history woven and connected to us? Absolutely they are. So let's, let's do some digging in history. When did the nation of Israel begin? Very early in the Bible, it was only chapter 12. I guess I didn't realize this ever until today. I said, when, when were they birthed? Chapter 12, like, like five pages into this book, the Jewish nation is birthed. Um, very early, God stated, and this is exactly what he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, get out of your country and from your father's house to the land I'll show you. And this is what he says. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those that curse you. Hmm. And he says, in that very introduction to this launching of a new of a new step and a new life for Abraham, he said, and in you all the nations and families of the earth shall be blessed. So before Peter was sent by God to give the gospel to the Roman centurion, God was working in the Gentiles even so early in this history of the Jews. Rahab the harlot from Jericho was a Gentile. Ruth, a poor widow from Moab, was a Gentile. Three Gentile wise men came to worship baby Jesus when the Jewish king Herod wanted him dead. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, was a a Gentile doctor, most historians believe. So down the line, it was not the color of your skin or the bloodline that brings you to faith in God's family, that brings you to God's family. It's faith. It's faith. It's faith alone. So again, the big question in chapter 11, has God cast away his people? Paul says, absolutely not. Look at me, he says. I was a hard nut to crack. So how was he one? How was he one to Christ? Well, I believe, I believe if you really read all of the backstory, it was spiritual jealousy. Oh, yes, I know that he was on a rampage and going to murder and arrest Christians. And God knocked him off his high horse. But back up the truck, I believe that God had a meltdown for him that he was never able to shake. And it was a young man that was on fire for God. His name was Stephan. And what a light. What a light he was. And what an interesting story he has. He was a servant. He was chosen to minister in a servant position to widows. And here were the qualifications that he needed to have to do such a low service. No offense to widows. I love them. It's a high service. But to the average person, that might seem kind of low. And here is the, con- here is the qualifications. Stefan had to have a good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. A good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. I'll tell you, wisdom is a glorious thing in a young person. 
And many people believe that Stephen was young, maybe 19, 20 years old. When he was falsely accused by the Jewish leaders, instead of being resentful and hateful, his face was like the face of an angel. So as they were stoning him, Stephen looked up and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus himself standing at the right hand of God. And he announced it, the shining face and they're stoning him. And he's saying, oh my goodness, I see God. I see Jesus standing there for me. I believe that that was the undoing of Saul. What was he feeling when he watched his face? As he watched Stephen, was he angry or was he afraid or was he jealous? Saul heard words that must have shattered him. Stephen knelt down. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. For Saul, as we know, he became quite angry and vicious against Jesus. Why? Jealousy. What does Stephen have that I don't have? He can't really see God, can he? He can't really forgive, can he? In the last, in the last few weeks, we've been talking about sharing our faith. And that's really, really good, important. But the greatest impact in a lost, angry, bent against God world right now is living our faith. That's the most powerful testimony. Jesus said, let your light so shine that they may see, that they may see your good works. God's character shining in you. Through action. You are the salt. You are the salt in this world. They say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's true unless you feed the horse salt, and then he'll drink. And somehow God wants to use us like that. It's called jealousy. It's good. It's a good thing. Nicodemus, I think he had jealousy. I think he was saying something's missing in me. Something's missing. I'm watching these uneducated 12 men, part of them from Galilee. And they are, they're loving the God life. All I do is study. He was thirsty. He was thirsty for God, and that brought him to Jesus. Now, let's look at Elijah, this interesting story. Now, let's go to Elijah. What's his story? His story, his backstory is as the Jews went into the promised land, God gave them leaders like Joshua, Gideon, and Samuel. But in 1 Samuel, when Samuel was old, the leaders went to him and said, here's what we want you to do. Appoint a king to rule us just like everybody else. We want a king. We want a king that will lead us into battle. We want a king that will make our nation mighty. When Samuel heard their demand, 
give us a king to rule us. He was crushed. How awful. Samuel prayed to God. I think he, he did some of the praying that sometimes we do. He complained in prayer to God. And God answered Samuel, go ahead. Do what they're asking. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. God did give them kings, Saul, David, Solomon. Then the kingdom was split, and the northern kingdom became very, very wicked with a series of wicked, wicked kings. And worse of all, a wicked queen, Jezebel. She was the Corella de Vil of the, of the, of the world. Elijah was brave, though, on fire for God, and did this big showdown with fire coming down on God's altar. But basically, he was outnumbered, Elijah was. And at the end of that showdown, even though God showed up, Elijah was terribly discouraged and angry and defeated and felt very alone. Evil powers had overtaken their government. Not that we know anything about that. Listen carefully. Elijah then pleaded, look at the words it says, pleaded with God against Israel. Elijah pleaded with God against Israel. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee. You know, we don't always see what God sees. We don't always know what God knows. But you know what? Elisha did good. In his depression, in his discouragement, he went to God. He complained to God. And God has broad shoulders And God showed him and told him things that he could not know in any other way. And that's a powerful thing. And I believe that God wants us to take that, take that money to the bank and spend it. That's a valuable lesson for us because sometimes we are overwhelmed and quite discouraged and we feel outnumbered. The bad guys are bigger than us and more powerful and on a rampage. But we need to know that we know our God. And there are faithful people around this planet, was then, and there still is. There still is. And the big important line that is like a flashing light is the divine response. Child of God, take your, take your heartache to God and expect him to answer. And I pray that you will listen We need to listen to God. We need to ask him questions and listen for his answers. Sometimes he answers in the word. Sometimes he answers through a situation. Sometimes he he answers through a message or through each other. God is a speaking God to our downhearted heart. There's so much still. Ah. Turning a few pages. God is working. God is working. I want to tell you a story. Um, God is working on Israel. Let me just read a little bit more. Even so, at this present time, there's a remnant. 
there's a remnant of Jews. Please know that. We don't see this big revival, but there's a remnant. And if by grace it's no longer works, otherwise grace is no longer let grace. God is working by his grace. He's wooing Israel. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it. The rest are blinded. There's a blindness. There's a blindness. I've been to Israel several times, and it's just a mystery to me. It's a mystery to me how far they seem away from God and how the Christians, we savor every last detail. We want to walk where Jesus walked. We want to um, see the, the valley where Gideon lapped up the, the water. We want to see where Goliath slew the giant. But so many of the Israelites, they seem numb. They seem far away from the, the things of God. It's such a mystery to us. But God is still wooing and he still has a remnant. Um, Holly, how many years ago did we go to Israel? Do you know? 2009, I took a team to Israel. Some of you have heard this story. Holly was on my team. And the whole point was that I had been going to Russia for many years. And I heard that Russian girls, just right out of orphanages, were being swooped up, taken to Israel by bad guys, and pushed into the sex trade. Uh, sex trade. Well, that fired me up. I was furious. And God gave me a team, and we went to Israel, and we did outreach on the street, and we did a conference, a beautiful conference for for these Jewish women. It was just a, a powerful, wonderful time there, and God did many miracles. But one of the things that happened is we handed out uh, pieces of paper that that had Isaiah, some scriptures from Isaiah, um, to people on the street, men and women. And I didn't find one, one Jewish person that we met on that trip that had ever read Isaiah. Broke my heart. But God has a remnant. So as, at the end of our trip, um, I knew that we couldn't, I couldn't take a team of girls to, to Israel without then taking a tour. So we hired a, a tour guide, and she took us around to, to see amazing things. And the last few days, we went back to Jerusalem. And um, the, we had the first day at Jerusalem. It was a glorious day, but it was blazing hot, blazing hot. And um, before we had gone uh, in the bus on the way to Jerusalem, our tour guide had said, I am so sorry, your first day at Jerusalem, and uh, we have a big event happening. We've had a drought, and our crops are dying. And so um, the, the, the president of Israel has, has commanded all the, the school children to come from all over the nation to come to Jerusalem this very day to pray at the praying wall for rain. And all of a sudden the spirit said, tell her, we're excited and in our bus on the way to Jerusalem, we had a prayer meeting and everyone got in circles and we started praying for those children that were coming to Jerusalem. And so as we were in the city, it was blazing hot, and we saw all these children just running around, and they were praying at the, the, the wailing wall, and we got sunburned. It was just blazing hot again. The next morning, I woke up at 5 o'clock, and the sky was black, and lightning 
was crashing across the sky and it was thunder. And I went to the window and I pretended I was a fourth grader and I put my nose to the window and I could hear a little child's voice saying, Mom, Mom, God heard our prayers and it's raining. You know, Revelation chapter 6 talks about the tribulation, which we're not going to see because we will be raptured. But it talks about 144,000 that will be redeemed to come to the Lord and be on fire. Maybe those children right there on that day that are now how many years older? They're young men and women. God is not finished with Israel. God is not finished. Just a couple of uh, last things. Um, one scripture I want to read is John 1, 9. And it's so important that weaves right in with the story. John 1, 9. Jesus was the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. God is not finished, not finished with the Gentile world, not finished with the Jewish world. God has not cast out his people. How can we know? Paul's story says no. Nicodemus' story says no, not done. Elijah's story says no. God's promises and track record says no. What's God's track record? History is important. Zechariah 2.8 says, Ho, Zion, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. God says that. Let me say it again. Ho, Zion, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. But the nation of Israel has had many enemies. Psalm 83, 2 and 3 says, Behold, how your enemies grow and rear their heads. They conspire against your people. It's true. But Psalm eighty-three seventeen says, May they ever be ashamed and disgraced. And perish. Let them know that you alone are the most high God. So, so is that true? So is that true? I'm going to show a picture of a t-shirt here on the screen. It's a t-shirt you can buy for $17.99. I have the order form. And what does it say? It's a list of civilizations and nations and empires that have tried to destroy the Jewish nation. Nations like ancient Egypt, they are now gone. The Philistines, gone. The Assyrians, gone. Babylonians, gone. The Persians, the Greek, the Roman Empire, gone. 
the Byzantines, the Spanish Empire, the Nazi Germany, gone. The Soviet Union, gone. At the bottom of the t-shirt, it says, Jewish people, the smallest of nations, but with a friend in the highest places. So the last thing it says, so the message is, be nice. Be nice. Some of the world doesn't get that. Be nice. As we look at the fence um, coming together in our world, we see that all the pieces of prophecy are coming together. And in AD 138, this is the year 2021, AD 31. AD 2021 is where we're living. A.D. 138, the Jewish nation ceased to be a nation. 1968, for the first time, it became a nation again. 70, 48, 1948, became a nation again. Same year that my husband was born. 72 years ago, and prophecy speaks of, of once the tree starts to bud, that one generation will not pass. So the things of prophecy are coming together. God is not done with Israel. They are the olive tree And they will sprout again, and God has a plan for their life. Ezekiel 37, would you turn with me? Ezekiel 37 and 38 are powerful, powerful chapters. Uh, Very prophetic chapters, and maybe you've read this, but it's the greatest picture and the most beautiful picture, and the picture of God is not done. The hand of the Lord came upon him, Ezekiel, and brought me by the Spirit and set me in the midst of a valley that was full of bones. Can you see it? Can you see it? And it feels in so many ways the history, the the death, the hardship, the hardness of heart of the Jews. This valley was filled with bones. Then he caused me to pass by all around and behold, there were many in the open valley. And they were very dry. And God said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And you know what I answered? Oh, Lord. You know. He was saying, I don't know. You know. Again, he said, prophesy to these bones. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones. Surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, flesh upon you, skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together. But there was no breath. And he said to me, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, Thus saith the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. I think what we see right now 
is the bones have come together. The bones of the nation of Israel have come together and they're functioning. They're functioning. Our, our, um, what do you say? Embassy. Embassy was just moved to Jerusalem. And now other countries are moving their embassies to Jerusalem. It's a nation. It's vibrant. It, amazing. Uh, flourishing. But there's no breath. There's no breath. But God tells Ezekiel, command. Command. Prophesy to the breath. Come from the four winds. Breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied, and breath came unto them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Let's pray. Let's pray for the nation of Israel. God says, I will bless those who bless Israel. We are to pray for the nation of Israel. We are to pray for their safety because there's always great danger. But more than that, let's pray for revival. For the breath of God. The wind of God to blow in their nation. God, we pray, Lord. Fall upon them. Not just in Israel. Many Jews have turned their back on, on you. Soros is a Jew and he's one of the most wicked men in the world. But God, you can raise from the dust. And bring revival. We pray for those children that we prayed for in Jerusalem. That they would be part of the 144,000. God, that you would send revival. God, may our hearts be knit to this great history and heritage and connectedness that you gave us through Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. And they said, amen, amen.